We are going to continue our study through the book of First Peter. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and Pastor Dade, it'd be happy to get you one. He didn't know that until I let him know that he was, but he is. He'll be right up here. And we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 13. We covered the first 12 verses last week. And verses 1 through 12 really highlighted and emphasized our salvation. Those that have come to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, verses 1 through 12, highlighted that we are chosen, we're called, we're elect, we're pilgrims. But we've also been begot of God. We are born again. We are His children. We have entered into a new family. We have a new life. And part of that is a living hope. We have an inheritance that is undefiled and incorruptible that has been reserved for us, set aside in heaven. And Peter began his letter that way focusing on the great work of salvation that God set into motion in our lives, that we responded to. Peter began his letter with that foundation because what is to follow? The commands, the instructions, the exhortations have to build off of that acknowledgement and that standing that we have in God because of Christ. You see, God's commands are always rooted in God's grace. And that's to say, the indicative always precedes the imperative. And I don't know what that means, but a lot of commentators said it. So I thought maybe it would mean something to you. But the way I would put that in words that I understand is what God has done for us always precedes what we do for God. God's actions towards us always come before our response to, to God. And Peter goes to great extent in his construction of this letter to this church that has been dispersed by Roman persecution because if we get that backwards, if we get that backwards and, and think that what we do for God comes before what God does for us, then we've just spit in the face of the gospel. We've just claimed a works righteousness. So even in the way that Peter lays out this letter to a church that is probably not feeling super privileged, to a church that is not feeling super lucky or super blessed to be under God's family, a church that might feel like they have done something that has caused them to be living in this difficult time that they're experiencing under Roman persecution. Peter says, no. What we do for God always follows what God has done for us. So having laid out very clearly, and in a way that really highlighted God's hand in our salvation, 
We had someone that was joining us online last week, and when I went home, I responded to her because as I taught through these first 12 verses detailing our salvation, Peter highlights how much God's hand is all over it. And in teaching that, I almost neglected to properly highlight our response. Because scripture teaches both. We're accountable for what we do, and God is sovereign over everything. And we can really only look and highlight it one of those at a time. And Peter highlights God's work because it is what God has done for us that always precedes what we do for God. But having laid that out, Peter then says in verse 13, Therefore, because of this, because of the salvation that you have, because of the great lengths that God has gone in His mercy for you, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when, re when we read this, it looks like there are three things that we ought to do. Gird up your minds, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll take them in that order. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's a figure of speech and one that we don't use anymore. The girding up of one's loins is a concept many of you that are students of Scripture might be familiar with. In these times, men wore long robes because they didn't want their knees to get sunburned. Don't you hate that, bud, when your knees get... Right? Okay. That's not only why, but they wore long robes. And so whenever it was time to do some serious physical exertion, be that work or fleeing. We see this in Exodus um, during the Passover, but they would take the long trail of their robes and they would essentially loop it over into the rope that was their belt. Because if I'm going to run a race, I'm going to do it in shorts. To do this with our mind would be similar to a figure of speech we would use nowadays to roll up your sleeves, right? So what does it mean to roll up the sleeves of your mind? It's to prepare your mind for action. Whenever we get ready for action, it's, it's to be focused on the task and understand that in light of our salvation, our minds need to be ready to get down to business, right? They're going to be called into service. And part of that, to be a good steward of that, means to get rid of loose and sloppy thinking. You know, that's some of the beauty of the metaphor, the word picture that Peter uses, is if you really want to get to work, you don't want a long robe or jeans or just detritus hanging around your ankles. And we see that with our thoughts, especially today. There's so much that hangs around the excess or the periphery that is not essential to our job. You know, the amount of weeds in my flower bed have absolutely nothing to do with how I am loving my wife and children. 
Yet, gosh, do I not spend a whole lot of time worried about the amount of weeds in my flower bed. You know, so much so that I just let the whole flower bed be overcome with weeds. But there are situations like that that multiply themselves all over our lives. And then Peter adds to that, be sober. And to be sober, he's not speaking of intoxication as we might use it with any sort of substance or alcohol. But to be sober would be to avoid distraction. To be self-controlled would be a better, or not a better, but an appropriate translation. To be self-controlled controlled in thought and spirit. You know, when I read be sober in reference to our minds and how that relates to our walk with Christ, I can't help but think that often we can find ourselves living in a way where we are drunk off the world and the things of the world. Not even in a sinful way, but just in a distracted way. If we're not conscious, if we're not diligent, if we're not intentional with where we are placing our thoughts, if we're not sober in the way that we are thinking about things, it is so, so easy to become drunk off the things of the world. And if you've ever been drunk, you can find that then your senses, your other senses, are rather numbed or dulled. And when we are drunk off the things of the world, our spiritual senses can be numbed to the reality of God. And so here we can be believers. We can find ourselves under the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. But if our minds are not sober, of, of what effect is that? We can find ourselves rather aimlessly wandering. And in an attempt to try and convey how these two relate to one another, there was only one thing that came to mind. And so I have to share it now, even though it makes absolutely no sense. It makes some sense, so I'm going to share it. But it's going to be weird, and I can't explain why it's weird, except this is what I've got, so this is what you're getting. Imagine a soccer player. And there's a soccer player in a wedding dress. But they're getting ready to play the game. And so, of course, to do that well, they would need to like any respecting wedding dress wearing soccer player, they would have to pick up their dress and bundle it up with whatever they had. So they have girded up their loins. Now, if, <laughs> go ahead, get it out, get it out. This is important, this is important. They, that is to, to, to gird up the loins of their mind. But now, if they are not self-controlled in thought and spirit, then having made themselves sharp and ready, if they just sprint after the first player that moves, oblivious of where the ball is or what's going on in the game, what good does it do? Like, yeah, they're moving really quick, but their movements are pointless. They're, they're going after the wrong goal. 
They might be a good player, but they're playing the wrong game. Yep, okay. So, that went about as well as I anticipated it did. So we will move briskly on to the third thing in our list, and that is to rest your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now again, imagine you're a soccer player. No, don't. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> hope to Peter. Hope to Peter is much like faith is to Paul. As we're walking through the footsteps of Paul, we see so often his focus on faith and the aspects of faith and how that manifests itself in our life, in our life, in our lives. Hope is Peter's focus. We saw how he emphasized that last week in everything we have to hope for in our salvation. And the hope that Peter speaks of is very much so an end time hope. It's an eschatological hope. It's a hope that is future facing. We see that in verse 4 where the inheritance that we have is reserved, right? And this is not a complete picture of our salvation. I'm just merely elaborating on the things that Peter has chosen to highlight to make the point that he is about to make. So the hope that Peter highlights is a forward-looking hope. The salvation that Peter highlights, he highlighted many of the aspects that have yet to be revealed. Because in reality, there are three tenses to our salvation, right? We have been saved. When we accepted what Christ did on the cross, that's done. It's said and done. But we still are being saved as we live in these imperfect bodies, as we continue to be sanctified and to be made more like Christ. And we will be saved completely. And that, this is what Peter focuses on in the words that he chooses, that the grace that will be revealed at the revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. So it's a forward-facing hope. And this is why that's important. It emphasizes in these moments that what God is doing now is in a sense a work in progress for the believer. Even believers having been saved, possessing eternal security, we are living in unfinished business. And this is a much better example, <laughs> okay? I'm going to give you another one, and it's much better than the previous one. Lewis, you missed it. It was great, man. You can ask somebody about it later. <laughs> Our life as believers being a work in progress is much like restoring a car. It's much like restoring a car. Because when someone goes to a junkyard and pulls that out, they are purchasing it. It is theirs. They own it. But what they see is not necessarily just the condition that it's in, but the plans and purposes they have for it. And it will not be done until everything is done. And it's on the road and everything is perfect. Sometimes we read God's promises. We read the word of God and it feels like we should be a pristine 
Corvette and we feel like a broken down piece of junk. And the reality is those can both be true because we are trapped inside of time and God is outside of time. And so the hope that Peter speaks of is a forward-facing hope because he screams at us, acknowledge the reality that what you're experiencing is not all there is. Remember, the people to whom he's writing specifically in this context are believers that had been spread out and pushed away because of the persecution by the Roman government as a result of their faith. That probably didn't feel great. They probably did not love their day-to-day existence in that time, in that place, as believers. And Peter's encouragement to them, just as it is to us today, is to say, hey, I understand that the reality of your existence right now is really, really loud. And the things that you struggle with today And the experiences that you had today and yesterday and are looking forward to or not looking forward to tomorrow seem like the biggest things in your life. But Peter says, no, 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 no. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to realize that these three things, this list is not really three things, but it's one thing. And that one thing is to rest your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought. And those other two things are in service to that. And and grammatically, it doesn't convey itself in the English. But in the Greek, it, it, the, the verses should, should more accurately read, set your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ by girding up the loins of your mind, by preparing your minds for action, and by being sober, by being self-controlled in thought and spirit. We see that emphasized in verse 14. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, as in your ignorance, when you didn't know better, when you weren't thinking rightly. You see, the translation between these things is when we put all of our hope when we rest all of our future expectation, when we're investing all of our thoughts in not what the reality is right now around us, but the reality that will be true with the revelation of Christ Jesus and the receiving of that grace and the completion of God's work in progress. When we do that, we then also have to guard that reality with our mind. You see, because the reality is Jesus bought the souls of believers on the cross. But our mind has a lot to do with how that manifests itself right now. 
Jesus bought our souls on the cross. But our mind has a lot to say about how that manifests itself in our lives. Peter is saying that if we can hold up the truth of our eternity bigger than the reality of our current circumstances, then through the disciplinedness of our minds, we can generate a faithful, fruitful walk. Now, that's not to say that there will not be mistakes. That's not to say that that will be, that the key to righteousness or the key to holiness is thinking really hard about it. But I think we often underestimate the role that our minds play in the way we feel about things and the decisions that we make. And I think this is part of what Peter is getting at in verse 15. When he continues this thought, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy in all your conduct. In everything we do. In all your conduct. Yet we trace that up, and this is directly related to where we put our hope, and that's translated through how we're thinking. I'm going to say that again. That was pretty confusing. When we put our hope, in the grace that we will receive in the future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we put our hope in, when we have a living hope and we're mindful of the future inheritance that we will receive, the reality not of what's yelling around us, but the reality of what was done for us on the cross, that takes disciplined thinking because nothing outside of these doors is going to tell you that the most important thing in your life was what Christ did on the cross and he has plans for you and that he loves you and you were called and chosen and whatever you identify with outside these doors as a husband or a wife or a daughter or a worker or a student, you're a child, and you're called by God. All throughout this passage, we see Peter continually holding up God's work, God's plans, and God's hand in what's going on. That we wouldn't feel abandoned or lose heart because when we're looking forward to the reality of the grace that we will receive, when our salvation is completed, when we are face-to-face -face with Jesus, however you want to put it, when we look forward to that reality, 
this, the, the impact, the impact that that has on our decisions now is life-changing. And it takes a disciplined mind to realize that. We'll see how Peter continues to develop this thought. In verse 17, it says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. He's building the argument a little backwards, but he's saying, Be holy, for I am holy. And by the way, you are calling on a God who does pay attention. You will be judged. God cares about what you're doing. This should be a sobering thought. The things that we should do should be made from a position of reverence, of concern for the Lord. Why? Peter, why? Because knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without spot or without blemish and without spot. You see, when we rest our hope fully upon the salvation that we will receive, the grace that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to think about right now, the reality is that this moment of my life, tomorrow, the day after that, was bought and paid for by the blood of a perfect, sinless Savior. And what did that redeem me from? What did that redeem me from? But verse 18, the aimless conduct. The aimless conduct. And so now I want to rewind back up to verse 16 and verse 15. We kind of glossed over it. That concept of be holy for I am holy. That's a high bar. And when we look at holy, we see that it means to be set apart. To be set apart. To be set apart as opposed to what it's contrasted with there in 14, being conformed to the former lusts. Now, if our lives have been redeemed, have been redeemed to be set apart, to be different, to be holy. And our hope is consumed entirely with what we will receive at the revelation of Christ Jesus. What the reality of the end of our lives means, be that at our death or at the return of Jesus, and we know that the time in between was paid for at a great price, what impact does that have on our decisions? You know, a lot of times when we think, be holy, 
we think that means avoid sin. And it does, and we should, but I don't think that's a complete picture. Because God is himself holy. He is entirely set apart from sin. But he's also wholly good. And he's wholly purposeful. And what were we redeemed from? We were redeemed from much, but Peter highlights the fact that we were redeemed from the aimless conduct of our fathers. And as Peter writes to a church that was persecuted by their government, I believe that the word that the Holy Spirit writing through Peter has for us today is one of holiness. One of being set apart. One of asking the question, what is aimless about what we do? Because there's such a confusing aspect of our salvation that on, on this side of a line, we did not belong to God. And then we accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then now everything belongs to God, but my life around me seems very much so similar. The world that we live in is very much the same. The things that we are important, although it might be very easy to deny this sin and that sin, is aimless. We think that being holy is living the lives that we used to live without the presence of sin. But if we function under the reality that the only thing that matters is what happens when we die, and that Jesus bought the time that we have now and are sharp enough with our minds to not be distracted by everything else that's screaming at us, what would our lives look like? What would some of our decisions look like? So that's my challenge to you today. Where can you increase in holiness? Is there a sin that you need to be set apart from? If there is, flee. Flee from it. But where is there aimlessness? What in our life is perhaps not evil, not sinful, but might not be worth the precious blood that Jesus spilled to pay for it? That might be serving some other not sinful end that we inherited with these broken bodies that came to the Lord. Our desires for Success, our desires for 
the homes that we live in or the cars that we drive or the size of our 401k or the amount of food in our pantry or our hobbies, things that are not evil, not bad, but perhaps aimless, perhaps not set apart, perhaps not holy like God is holy, fully focused on his mission. And that's a big question. We're not all going to get there between now and this time next week. And we're not all going to get there ever until we're dead and we receive the grace that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a step closer. Why? Not because God will love us more. Because He couldn't love us anymore. Because of the love that He's already poured out. Because of the love that He's already shown us. Everything we do is just a response. And no response could be too great. And if we think that anything we could do would, would, is unreasonable, is an unreasonable ask, then rewind the tape and think about how great the salvation that you possess is. That's the argument that Peter's making. One, look how amazing and incredible and invaluable your salvation is. Two, so now look at how you think about life in view of that. And then as he continues to go on, he will have specific instruction. He'll talk to us about how we deal with one another and specific ways of what we do. But if we don't buy into the premise that the inheritance that we will receive, the living hope that has been purchased for us, if we don't buy into the premise that that is ours and it is the most valuable thing that could ever be purchased, that could ever be had, that we will ever think of, then why would we bother to live differently? Why would we bother to be holy? Why would we bother to be different? Peter gives us that reason. And that reason is the reality of the love that God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit have poured out to purchase our everything. Father, we are humbled by the reality of what you've done. We're humbled by what you've done and we are almost frozen in the gap between where we are and, and where we will be when your glory is fully revealed, when our salvation is made complete. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible thought to think about the gap that exists in our minds and in our lives. But Lord, you have given us the book of First Peter. You have 
given us your spirit and your heart that we could take a step closer. Lord, that, that we would know there is no losing as long as we're headed in the right direction. Father, please speak to us. What's next? It's easy in a moment like now to feel like we're doing everything wrong. That how could we be in this position? But Father Peter so clearly highlights your hand in our calling. The fact that we are chosen, elect, that you have not made a mistake. That you have not made a mistake. But Lord, you love us. You have amazing plans and direction for us. And Father, we just ask that you would speak to us and show us what that is in each of our homes, in each of our workplaces, in, in each of our hearts. And we pray this in your son's name.